Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Alright, whoever is listening to this, tell Jenny that she needs to listen to this because she asks me for this all the time, and I'm going to break this down for you guys. So you're going to have to bear with me as well. So we're going to talk about blood work. Like, what does blood work tell you? Like, why do we do blood work? You know, differences in different types of blood work. I'm going to break it down as easily as I possibly can. But remember, like, I've done this for how, you know, thousands of years now. But, you know, like, I went to school for four years just to learn how to read blood work. So there's a lot that goes into this. So I'm going to try to break it down, like, as simply as possible. But just, you know, strap in because it's going to be a bit of a longer podcast. All right. So for anybody who doesn't do a lot of blood work, I'm going to just kind of go over some of the basics real quick. So why do we get blood work? So blood work tells us a lot of different things. Like it can tell us about specifically like how organs are functioning or how white blood cells are functioning, what's going on with some things internally. It can't tell us everything but it can give us like a picture about what's going on inside the body at least. You know, how long does blood work take and what kind of blood work do we do? So there are lots of general practice, practice places that don't have blood work in-house, like they don't have the machines to run everything in-house versus a lot of emergency practices do have a machine to run blood work in-house. And that's mostly because when I'm doing an emergency, like I need to know right now, what that blood work looks like, or at least the basic blood work. Versus in general practice, like maybe you're going to be doing a procedure in two weeks. Well, that doesn't mean I need to know that blood work right now. It's not going to change anything right now versus if I get that blood work in two or three days. So we send out some of the blood work so that that way we can get it back in a couple of days to talk to the owners about what's going on with their pet. Versus an emergency, like I need that back immediately. So typically we'll be able to get blood work back in an hour to two hours, kind of depending on what's going on. All right, now we're going to get into a little more specifics here. So there are different components to blood. So if I was to take blood from a dog and you just look at a blood, like like look at the blood in a tube, there are going to be different components to it. If you were to spin it down, like, you know, those little hematocrit tubes that we have, those teeny tiny little tubes, those clear things. If you were to spin that down, you'll see three layers to that tube. One is the red part at the very bottom. That's the red blood cells. So that's all the components of the red blood cells inside that blood sample that we took. The second one is called the buffy coat. It's this little teeny tiny white line just above the red blood cells. That usually holds our white blood cells and also platelets. So imagine, like, go ask Latoya or Jordan or somebody to go look at one. Because if you look, you'll see that the red blood cells are really big compared to the amount of white blood cells or that buffy coat, that white line that's in there, is really small. And then the third layer is going to be on top. And it's this clearish, sometimes yellowish layer. That is either going to be plasma or serum, just kind of depending. And it depends on what kind of tubes you're going to use. So when we usually draw blood, typically you're going to use a purple top tube, which is going to give us our CBC, which we're going to go into more in a minute. And then you're going to use either a tiger top tube. Sometimes it's just like really dark red, but tiger top tube is what it's called, or a serum separator is the other name for it or you're going to use a green tube for plasma. 
So essentially they give you pretty much all the same parameters when you use a green top versus a, a serum separator. One, the green top gives you plasma versus the tiger top or the serum separator gives you serum. Now the differences are that with a serum separator, you actually have to let the blood clot first, which means that we're gonna use a lot of our clotting factors. So after that blood clots, the there's this little white gel thing that helps separate the red blood cells and all the clotted materials from the serum. Now in the serum separator, when the blood clots, it's taking some of those clotting factors or proteins out of the fluid part, which actually means that you have more fluid that's in the serum separator. So if you use serum, it'll give you more fluid. Versus plasma has an anticoagulant in the tube, usually heparin, but it can be other things as well. And that anticoagulant makes it so that the blood cannot clot. So you still spin it down the same way, but you're not going to get as much fluid from it. You know, there's pros and cons to both of these. Um, neither one of them is going to be perfect. In with plasma, you know, it might be that you don't have to wait so long to be able to run the test. Versus with serum, you have to wait longer for that blood to clot, but you might get more serum from it. So you kind of have to choose like which one do you think is going to be more important. But in general, they usually give you roughly the same parameters. Kind of the, one of the biggest things is knowing um, that they should always, when you run blood work, like we run, let's say we run a basic 17 or you know blood work that has CBC and chemistry. If we run that chemistry off of serum the first time, we really should run it off of serum every time afterwards because that can change a little bit. It's not going to be drastic changes, but it can be small changes. So ideally, we want to always make sure it's in the same type of tube for every subsequent blood draw that we need to do. If we don't get it the same one, is it a huge deal? No, it's not going to be a giant deal. All right, let's talk about now types of blood work. So the, the big things that we run in hospital or even our send out ones, they're called CBC, chemistry, and a urinalysis. So we're going to start with the CBC. What is a CBC? It actually stands for complete blood count or complete blood cell count. This talks about specifically our white blood cells, our red blood cells, and our platelets. So what are red blood cells? So red blood cells are these little cells that are created in the bone marrow and they go to the lungs because they want to pick up oxygen. Like that is their main job is they pick up oxygen and they deliver it to other places in the body. So you can kind of think of them as an Uber driver. So red blood cell Uber drives up to the lungs, picks up their passenger oxygen Oxygen wants to go to the brain, so a red blood cell Uber drives them up to the brain, drops them off. They actually do pick up other passengers when they go back to the lungs, but we won't get into that right now because their main job is to pick up oxygen and deliver it to the brain or deliver it to other parts of the body. In a patient who is anemic, anemic means that they have really low red blood cells, so they don't have enough red blood cells. That can be from many different things. Some of the things we look for is 
Is the bone marrow not making enough red blood cells? Is it that the body is destroying a lot of the red blood cells? That can be things like heartworm disease. It can be cancers that can cause that. Or is it that the red blood cells are being lost because of bleeding? So think about dogs who have been hit by a car. If they're really anemic, it might be that they're bleeding into something like their lungs or their chest or their abdomen. If their red blood cells are high, we call that polycythemia. And most of the time, it just means that they are dehydrated. It can be like certain cancers that can cause that. Um, it can also be that the bone marrow is just producing too many red blood cells. But 99% of the time, it's going to be just from dehydration. I just want to make a note when we talk about red blood cells, you'll see on a CBC, it'll say red blood cells. It'll also say hematocrit. So hematocrit and PCV, packed cell volume, are two things that people think are the exact same. And they're not, actually. So a, a, a PCV, we're going to start with that first. That's when we put it in that little, little crit tubes. We spin it down, and then you look at it on a piece of paper, and that tells you how many red blood cells or the percentage of red blood cells that are in that tube. Again, go ask Latoya, go ask Jordan to show you what I'm talking about. Ask them to show you a PCV so that you can see exactly what it looks like. But it's like visually looking at it to tell you how much red blood cells are in that PCV, are in that um, tube. We always go off of a percentage. It's not the exact number. It's usually a percentage. So with dogs and cats, our typical normal is going to be between 30 and 50%. And if you can't remember what PCV is, packed cell volume, think about it, the fact that it's being spun down. It is literally called that because it's being packed at the bottom of the tube. The red blood cells are being packed at the bottom of the tube, whereas the fluid will float to the top. So PCV is going to be a measurement that you tell us somebody looks at a paper and is able to say what that is by looking at it. Hematocrit, on the other hand, is something that we get from the CBC machine. So on the CBC machine, it does it as a calculation. What it does is it looks at the amount of red blood cells and it looks at the volume of the red blood cell. Certain things are going to affect that. Let's say your blood has sat out for a long time, maybe an hour. Totally enough time, right? If Latoya goes on lunch and then comes back and starts doing prescriptions, and then now that blood has been sitting in the window for an hour and we go to run it, it's going to actually show that those red blood cells have expanded. They've kind of blown up, which now makes it so that the hematocrit is not correct. It's going to distort it. That can distort it. And also the other thing that can distort it is hemolysis. So like, let's say it wasn't a very good stick. Let's say it was a crazy husky, wouldn't sit still. You had a really hard time getting blood from it and it wasn't a very good stick. And we have hemolysis inside that tube or the breakdown of red blood cells. Well, that's going to distort our hematocrit as well. So it might look like it's normal on the machine, and in reality, when we use the PCV, it might be really low or vice versa. Maybe, you know, that hematocrit looks 
really um, low, but when we do the PCV, it's actually normal. So those tubes, those crit tubes, and doing the PCV is actually very, very important because that is closer to the real number, not the calculated um, hematocrit. So even though people think that we're getting the exact same thing, we're not. So we do want to make sure we get the those hematocrit tubes as well. All right, the last part for our red blood cells is we're also looking at something called hemoglobin. We talked about Uber, right? Our little red blood cells being an Uber. Think of hemoglobin as Uber's backseat. That is actually where the oxygen is getting in and getting out, right? Inside that red blood cell, oxygen is getting in to Uber's backseat and it is getting out to go to the tissues. So hemoglobin is what's actually physically carrying that oxygen. If that backseat is broken, you can only fit one passenger instead of two passengers in there, or something happens, a car crash happens, and that hematic, that hemoglobin gets squished or that backseat gets squished. Those are all going to affect how the hemoglobin is being held. Whether that hemoglobin is able to hold however many oxygen, typically they can hold four, just FYI, but let's say that there's a problem with the backseat and it can only hold two. Well, that's what the hemoglobin is telling us. Like, how well is it able to hold oxygen? All right. Second part of our CBC. So the first part we talked about was red blood cells. Second part we're going to talk about are white blood cells. So there are two different kinds of white blood cells. There's different subcategories, but the two big kinds are called phagocytes and lymphocytes. Phagocytes mean that they are cells that are able to destroy things. They are, they want to destroy foreign particles. They want to destroy dying cells. They want to destroy bacteria. Like they want to destroy everything. They're like, they're basically like a little five-year-old boy. They want to destroy everything, right? For phagocytes, they're all produced in the bone marrow. And the most common one is going to be what's called a neutrophil. A neutrophil is the first line of defense. You'll see tons of neutrophils in there. They're like, when, if you look at a CBC, if like, just like look at the readout of it, you're going to see that there's a really high percentage of neutrophils because neutrophils are there to be just kind of like indiscriminate destroyers. This, if they think that there is something foreign, they want to go and destroy it. So, Usually we'll have really high neutrophils when there's things like inflammation or infection or cancer. Um, it can also be really high in some pets that are receiving like steroids, like prednisone and prednisolone as well. And then it can be low or neutrophils can be low when there's really serious infections. So like if we're using everything up in the beginning when it's really, it'll be really high. Let's say we have some sort of bacteria that's, um, let's say in the uterus, right? The uterus will then have that bacteria start to go in the bloodstream and then go to the rest of the body. Well, at first, those red, those white blood cells, those neutrophils will be really high because they're trying to produce more of them to fight off that infection. But eventually, they're going to have produced so many of them that they can't produce any more. And now those white blood cells are being destroyed by that bacteria and then they become low. And that's when we start worrying about things like sepsis. So really bad infections. <clears throat> cancer is another one. You know, in cancer, 
uh, cancer can do anything. That is my my uh, answer for pretty much like, why does cancer do this? Cancer can do anything. That's why. But <clears throat> in cancer, it can also cause these neutrophils to be really low as well. The second most common phagocyte is going to be monocytes. Monocytes are usually high during like really chronic diseases. Um, they are the interesting th thing about um, monocytes is that they are only called a monocyte when they're in the bloodstream, but we more commonly see them used outside of the bloodstream. So when they're in the bloodstream, they go to the site that that's, that has the problem or has the infection, and then it will go outside the bloodstream to that infection, and then we call it a macrophage. But it does the same thing as the neutrophils. Like it goes and it kills off bacteria and dying cells and foreign particles, things like that. So it does the same thing. We just have two different names of them for some reason. All right, the fourth phagocyte is called an eosinophil. Eosinophils are white blood cells that are really high when mostly we have parasites. So if you see a really high eosinophil, then a lot of times we're going to go looking to see if they have like roundworms or tapeworms or something, some sort of parasite that might be causing them to have a reaction and cause these eosinophils to be really high. The last phagocyte is called a basophil. They're the least common of all of them, so we don't usually like look at them too much, but usually if they're high, it just means that there's some sort of inflammation that's occurring. All right, so with white blood cells, I'm going to recap. We talked about there are two types. One is the phagocytes. Those are all the ones we just talked about, neutrophils, monocytes, eosinophils, and basophils. So besides phagocytes, the other one is called lymphocytes. <clears throat> it is the second most common one in there. So neutrophils are the first most common. Lymphocytes are the second most common white blood cell. They get a class all of their own because of the fact that they are not produced by the bone marrow. They're produced by the lymph nodes. So when you have really big lymph nodes, they're overproducing lymphocytes. They are usually produced because they are the immune response. They tell the body to create more antibodies. And we kind of talked about the antibodies and stuff before and when we talked about like why puppies and kittens get vaccine boosters. But <clears throat> essentially, it's because we are trying to get our body to create an immune response. We're trying to get our body to recognize that there is something wrong. There's some foreign invader and our body needs to respond to it. So that's what the lymphocytes are doing. They're telling them, they're telling the rest of the body, they're communicating to the rest of the body that there is something wrong and we need to respond. Large increases of lymphocytes are usually the most concerning for certain types of cancer called leukemia. And these are really high elevations, not just like a little bit high, but really high elevations are concerning for things like leukemia. All right, recapping of CBC, we have red blood cells, white blood cells, and now our third category is going to be platelets. So platelets are also called thrombocytes, just FYI, because we've talked before about other diseases that cause thrombocytopenia, meaning we have low thrombocytes or low platelets. They are produced in the bone marrow, just like most of our other white blood cells, all those phagocytes. And go ask Latoya or Jordan to look at them on a blood smear. Like you can 
identify neutrophils, you can identify lymphocytes, but you can also identify these little tiny platelets. And you can see how tiny they are in comparison to things like your red blood cells and your white blood cells. But for our platelets, they're the first responders to a bleeding problem. So our body is constantly breaking cells down and repairing them, and that includes our blood vessels. So if you're one of your cells in the blood vessel breaks down, if nothing came to tell it to stop, then you just bleed forever, right? Well, that's what the platelet's job is, is it circulates through the body, and then when it sees that there is some sort of bleeding, the platelet is the very first thing that responds, goes to that hole or that cell that's dying, and tells the rest of those clotting factors to come and fix this hole, come patch it up. So they're extremely important. If you don't have platelets, then your body cannot patch up that area. It just, they're like blind. All those those other clotting factors are blind and have no idea that there's a problem. So you need the platelets to be able to tell the rest of the body to help stop bleeding and start making a blood clot. We have thrombocytopenia that occurs when we have like things like ITP, which we've talked about before in certain cancers, in blood clotting disorders, in certain toxins like our salmon poisoning, and even bone marrow problems because that's where they're produced, right? For our thrombocytosis, meaning we have high thrombocytes or high platelets, those are usually just because of some sort of like injury or inflammation. It's usually not a big deal if we have too many platelets. It's usually a problem when we don't have enough platelets. All right, small recap, CBC, complete blood cell count, means we're looking at red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. Now we're going to jump over to chemistries. So our CBC, we usually use that purple top tube, and a chemistry, this is where that plasma or serum comes into play. Again, it doesn't matter too much as to which one you use, it just needs to be hopefully as consistent as we possibly can be. So in the chemistry, I'm kind of try to break it down into our big groups of things, but you'll see that they're all kind of interrelated is the problem. So they are hard to break down, but I think sometimes it's easier when you kind of know about like body systems as to what each one is being affected. All right, we're going to start with proteins. So we call them total proteins or TP is what it'll say on our chemistry machine. That does not stand for toilet paper. We're not toilet papering anybody. It's actually for total proteins. So Proteins, the total proteins means the amount of proteins in the plasma or serum, whichever one you're using. If we have an increased number of proteins, it means that the patient is usually just really dehydrated or has inflammation. Usually not a huge deal when we have a lot of proteins. Decreased proteins is when we start having concerns because that usually can be from like bleeding problems malnutrition, congestive heart failure, liver problems, things like that. So our two different types of total proteins are going to be albumin and globulins. Albumin is super important. So it's a protein that attaches to a lot of other things to make them work. So a lot of other enzymes, things that break things down. It makes those enzymes work better. But it's also super important for driving fluid into the blood vessels. You can kind of think of it as a sponge. So if I want blood, if I want water to stay in one place, 
I could use a sponge and it's going to soak all of that water up into the sponge, right? <clears throat> That's what our albumin does. It is keeping the water inside the blood vessels. Now, if I was to take that, that albumin or that sponge and put it on the outside of the blood vessels, let's say I put it into the tissue of the leg, that water will want to be drawn to the sponge. So it will leave the blood vessels and go into the tissue or basically into the sponge. So it's really important for albumin to be normal or higher, at least not low. Otherwise, we're going to lose a lot of fluid into other places. It could be that we lose fluid into tissue, like when we have edema or that, that swelling of the legs. It could be that we lose that fluid into the abdomen or the chest or the lungs. So it, it can be lost into anywhere. So ideally, we want albumin to be normal. And the way we get albumin is usually by food. Food is the number one way to get that. So that's that's why a lot of times we're just trying to push the pet to eat as much food as possible so we can keep their albumin up as best as we possibly can. The second one is globulins. So globulins are not quite as important as albumin, but still important. They do drive water to be into the, the vessels as well, just not nearly as much as albumin does. Our biggest concern, though, for albumins is when they're high. When they're high, we start worrying about things like cancer, or specifically in cats, it becomes really high when cats have FIP, or feline infectious peritonitis. Um, I'll get into that on another podcast, but it's just it's pretty specific to that. So when they're high, when we start worrying about those things. So to recap our total proteins, we worry about albumin being too low, globulins being too high. All right, now we're going to talk about our kidneys. So there are four main components to our kidneys. There's actually a lot more, but these are kind of like our big ones that we worry about. The first one is called BUN, not the bun, the BUN. It stands for blood urea nitrogen. So, so what is this? It just seems like a real weird name, right? So what happens is when we eat proteins, our body cells need to break them down. So they break them down from really complex proteins to little proteins just by using those things in the cells for, for different types of things. But then those little proteins get go to the liver, which gets broken down, those little proteins get broken down into something called ammonia, which is made of nitrogen. The nitrogen, though, then goes and combines with another element, usually like carbon or hydrogen or oxygen, to create this waste product called urea. Now, that's where we get the blood urea nitrogen. After that, the urea can travel from the liver through the bloodstream to the kidneys. Our kidneys, as long as they're healthy, can then filter out the urea to remove it from the bloodstream and put it in your urine. So essentially, it's creating a waste product. Your body is taking the good nutrients that you have, breaking it down into things that it doesn't need, and then finding a way to get rid of it. And by getting rid of it, that's actually something we can measure. Like we can measure how much of that BUN or that urea is being removed from the kidneys. So if we have really high BUN, then usually that means that our kidneys are not able to filter 
that urea correctly. So it can't put in, be put into the urine and we can't get rid of enough of it. So the kidneys can be damaged from lots of different things. Maybe that there's a toxin that damaged them like grapes or lilies or raisins, all those other things we've talked about before. It could be from things like antifreeze. It could be from um, a problem with like just the way that they were born. It could be a problem from them having chronic renal failure, lots of different reasons. But most of the cases, it's going to be elevated because of the fact that they have a kidney problem. It can be elevated from GI bleeding as well. Um, I won't get into it too much, but it's just because there's a lot of nitrogen that's being made that's been being put into urea and the kidneys just cannot filter it quickly enough. But most of the time it's going to be due to our kidney problems. If it's the BUN is decreased, that usually means that there's liver failure. Because remember I said the liver breaks down those proteins into ammonia, which create nitrogen. Nitrogen can then be made into urea. So if the if it's never made into urea in the first place, that means that nitrogen is not being made, which means the liver is not breaking it down. So it could be a liver problem if the BUN is decreased and we're just not getting enough urea being produced. All right, second thing is creatinine. So creatinine is usually increased in kidney failure, again, from like toxins, grapes, lilies, antifreeze, but it's also increased from things like blocked cats. Remember, we've talked about blocked cats before in episode one, or in ruptured bladders as well. Um, we usually don't care as much when the creatinine is lower. Uh, ideally, it's mostly just like we're worried when the creatinine is higher and again, most of the time it's going to be due to a kidney problem. Our third parameter that we're going to worry about for our kidneys is calcium. So calcium originates from the bone. There's usually a hormone called PTH or parathyroid hormone that tells your body that you don't have enough calcium in your bloodstream. So then you have calcium taken from the bone and being put back into the bloodstream. When you have enough calcium or an excess of calcium, the body then responds and tells the bone to reabsorb that calcium. So with kidney failure, we worry about if it's elevated, if those calcium is really elevated, because there's this feedback loop. Basically, the kidneys are helping to tell the body that you don't have enough calcium or if you have too much calcium. So if there is not enough calcium or the kidneys are not signaling that there is there is more than enough calcium, then the body's just going to keep pulling more calcium out of the bones. So then we worry about things like our kidneys that are failing. It can also be due to different types of cancer. So certain cancers will tell the body to produce tons of calcium or to pull as much calcium out of bones as possible. And then we worry about cancerous things. It can be from the bone being destroyed by some disease. So things that Think about like osteosarcomas, so bone cancers that will cause a lot of calcium to be pulled from the bones as well, or rat poisons. There are certain rat poisons that specifically affect calcium. Decreased calcium usually means that we're worried about things like eclampsia. So think about those dogs who came in who they've had puppies, you know, two weeks ago, they had like 12 puppies and it's a small dog. 
and they come in tremoring and eventually go into a seizure. Usually we worry about them having not enough calcium because the puppies are sucking them dry. They're, they need to give the puppies, the mom needs to give the puppies as much calcium as possible. So she's taking it from her bones. But when she does that, there's only so much she can take. And then her body is just basically like stuck to dry of calcium. And then they'll have these tremors because tremors are really, sorry, calcium is really important for our muscles as well, which is why they end up having these tremors and seizures. It can also be due to a parathyroid problem. So our thyroid sits in the neck and there's these little tiny glands that sit next to them called the parathyroids. Remember we talked about PTH was the hormone that tells the body to release the calcium from the bones, the parathyroid hormone that comes from the parathyroid glands. So it could be a problem with parathyroid glands if we're not producing enough. Or this can also be due to like antifreeze poisoning if they're too if it's too low. Uh, again, just a weird feedback mechanism. I won't get into that, but those are kind of some of the most common causes. And then the fourth thing now that we worry about for kidney problems. So far, we've talked about the BUN, creatinine, and calcium. The fourth thing is phosphorus. Phosphorus also originates from the bone, just like calcium, and it's controlled by the exact same hormones. They usually work opposite of each other. So if there's high calcium, there's low phosphorus. And if there's low, if there's high phosphorus, then there's low calcium. So did you notice really quickly, we talked about BUN, creatinine, calcium, phosphorus. And I didn't just mention just kidney failure for all of those. There are so many other things that they can be tied to. It's not just one thing. So we have to look at all of those things together to kind of decide if this might be a problem with the kidneys. And there's even more things we're going to look at as well later on. Um, and I'll kind of like do like a brief synopsis of that as well. But like that, these are like our big things, right? Like it's not just like one thing. So when somebody's like, well, the creatinine is elevated, what does that mean? Well, it can mean a lot of different things. And we have to look at the bigger picture to determine what that actually means. All right, so now we're going to go on from kidneys to blood glucose really quickly. So blood glucose is your blood sugar. Uh, most of the time, it's really high when there are times of stress. So like you'll see on blood work for a lot of cats and dogs that they are higher than normal because they're usually stressed out. They're at a clinic. They've had a, a drive in a car. Now we've you know, restrained them to get blood. Um, they're usually really stressed out. So they're usually their blood sugar is going to be higher than normal. It's when it's excessively high, like in the three, four, five, six hundreds, that we start worrying about things like diabetes. Other things can produce a high blood glucose as well, like Cushing's disease can produce a high blood glucose, but it's not going to be as high as things like our diabetic patients. And when I talk about diabetes, I'm going to specifically mention that it's diabetes mellitus. There are different types of diabetes. The other one is diabetes insipidus which actually doesn't have anything to do with blood sugar, but um, just to make that clarification that there are two different types of diabetes, which we'll talk about later, but I'm talking about specifically about diabetes mellitus when we talk about things like people having diabetes, animals having diabetes, and taking insulin. Now, if the blood glucose is low, that happens in like little toy breed dogs, especially when they're puppies and are not getting fed um, as often as they should. 
or in cases of malnutrition. And it may not be that they're eating a bad food. It might actually be because that they have a parasite that's eating all of their nutrients. This can be from things like cancer. So something called an insulinoma. Insulin is the exact opposite of blood glucose, essentially. If you have really high blood sugar or blood glucose, insulin comes in to help drive blood sugar down so that you don't have these huge spikes in it. It can also be due to things like sepsis, so having a lot of bacteria in the bloodstream, not good. And it's going to make the bacteria actually eat blood sugar because bacteria loves sugar. So if it's if it sees that there's sugar in the body, if it sees that there's sugar in something else, like let's say the urine, um, you're going to get sepsis because of that bacteria just eating all the sugar. And then also, if you ever notice, you know, if you have pets that come in that are having a seizure, a lot of times we'll get a blood sugar first is the very first thing, because that will tell us whether this is seizures being caused by low blood sugar or if it's something else that's causing the seizure. All right, that was blood glucose. And now we're going to jump over. We did kidneys, blood sugar. Now we're going to jump over to the liver. So there are four types of tests, main tests that we use for the liver. The first one is called the ALT. I won't get into like the full name of all of them. That's ridiculous. I don't remember them. I'm not going to make anybody else remember them. But the ALT, it's essentially this enzyme that's created by liver cells. So it's this little particle that's like made by the liver cells. It's usually increased when there are like some sort of damage or disease to the liver specifically. Uh, the most common times we see them elevated are going to be due to like traumas. So if they get hit by a car, their liver value tends to go up. Or if there's anaphylaxis, um, where they have those really bad allergic reactions, those can go in, they have really high ALTs. Or certain toxins can have just really high ALTs, as long as one of those things is affecting the liver. ALKFOS is the second one. It's created by tons of different tissues, not just by the liver, like ALT. But it's typically going to be elevated when there are certain endocrine disorders, so like diabetes, Cushing's, thyroid problems. It's usually because there's an increase in cortisol levels. So cortisol is a steroid, and that creates like this inflammation of the liver, essentially. It can also be elevated in things like liver disease, bone disease, or other diseases that may cause some sort of damage to those cells as well. Our third liver parameter is GGT. Usually that's actually very more specifically for the gallbladder. So the gallbladder sits literally like nested, nestled inside our liver. And it's very much connected. So it's connected to the liver because all of the bile goes from the liver into the gallbladder. That's just, that's just what basically like holds bile. That's what the sac is there for, just to hold bile. And then that bile gets pushed down into the small intestines right next to the pancreas. So if we have really high GGT, then I start worrying about that there's something wrong with either the gallbladder or the bile ducts that are within the liver. Our fourth category for the liver is going to be bilirubin. Now, bilirubin becomes elevated, and we we can physically see this. 
So think about animals who have jaundice or icterus. So in people, we call it jaundice. In animals, we call it icterus. But it's that yellow discoloration of the skin. That that bilirubin has to be elevated in order to see that icterus. So let's say you see this patient that's like highlighter yellow. You run their blood work and it shows that their bilirubin is normal. You probably got the wrong blood work. Something is wrong there because the bilirubin has to be elevated in order for that patient to look icterus unless some kid took a marker to that pet, which has happened. But with the bilirubin, it's created when the liver breaks down old red blood cells. That's a normal part of the liver's job. It's supposed to break down these really old red blood cells. Red blood cells live for about 100 days, and then it gets broken down by the liver and also the spleen, but mostly the liver, and then new red blood cells are made. So when we see that there's an elevated bilirubin, I just talked about the fact that it involves liver and it involves the red blood cells. So now we need to determine which one of those is this. So we are looking at other parameters. So like, let's say if we're wondering, is this pet ictric or jaundice because of the fact that the red blood cells are being destroyed? Well, we're going to go look at the red blood cells. Is that pet anemic or have low red blood cells? Well, if it's anemic, then that tells me that this is probably a problem with the red blood cells being destroyed. If the red blood cells are normal and the pet has a elevated liver values, then that's going to tell me that this is more likely due to the liver not being able to break down that bilirubin correctly. And that's why we have this elevated bilirubin. So again, like this all kind of ties into each other. We need to look at not just one parameter itself. We need to look at all the parameters together. All right, we did our kidneys. We did our liver. We've done our blood glucose. We have two more on our chemistry. Next one is going to be the pancreas. Pancreas is broken down into amylase and lipase. Amylase is an enzyme that's produced by the pancreas. So it's something that breaks things down by the pancreas, and it specifically breaks down sugar. So, you know, when Scruffy gets some Cheerios or some, what's another, super sugar-filled like fruity, fruity pebbles or something like that, you know, some sugary type substance, the pancreas is going to break it down using amylase. The other one is called lipase. This is an enzyme that's made by the pancreas that breaks down fat. Now, it's more often that our pets get into some sort of fatty substance. So it's going to be things like, you know, the gristle of a steak or they eat the whole bone and it has bone marrow, which has a lot of fat in it. Or, you know, somebody gives them some piece of like super fatty deli meat or something. That's usually what causes the problem. So when the lipase becomes elevated, that tells us that there's inflammation of the pancreas or what's called a pancreatitis, inflammation of the pancreas. You can have both of these values elevated, the amylase and the lipase, or you can have one of them that's elevated. Um, And there's a number of things that can cause this. All I know is that there is some sort of inflammation of the pancreas. What has caused that inflammation? Now we have to go look for. Is it cancer? Is it something like a 
a fatty meal that they got that uh, that made their pancreas really inflamed? Is there a foreign body that's like kind of stuck where the pancreas is and that's putting pressure on the pancreas causing an inflammation? There's lots of different reasons. So now we have to go and explore once we know exactly which one it is. All right, that was the pancreas. The last thing that we're going to talk about in chemistry is going to be electrolytes. I've kind of already talked about things like our calcium and stuff. Those are technically electrolytes. But when we think about our electrolyte machine, it's going to be potassium and sodium. Chloride is also on there, but it's not as important. I'm not going to talk about it right now. But potassium can be elevated when we have things like kidney problems. So this is a really good indicator if we see that our BUN and our creatinine, remember our two kidney, main kidney problem um, elevations, if the potassium is also elevated, that kind of tells me that this is something that happened very quickly. So it happened very quickly and it's usually going to be some sort of toxin or infection that's causing this. This can also happen that they have really elevated potassium in blocked cats. Remember from episode one, blocked cats or even in Addison's disease. So we want to look for those other things to tell us, is this potentially a blocked cat by feeling their bladder? Or is this potentially Addison's disease by looking at also our sodium? Decreased potassium can tell me that there is a chronic kidney disease. The reason why is because with an acute kidney problem or something that happened very quickly, the body has not had a chance to compensate yet and so that potassium has not been able to normalize in the body. Versus a chronic kidney failure, the body has been able to normalize it. It's pretty much gotten used to the fact that the potassium is going to be elevated. And so it's actually like pushed itself to normalize what potassium is. So chronic kidney failure, potassium is decreased or normal. Acute kidney failure, potassium is elevated. The other electrolyte we're going to talk about is sodium. Sodium can be really elevated from things like toxins, but also super crazy fact is that in cats who who swallow Nerf bullets, you know, like the little bullets and the Nerf guns, for some reason, their sodium goes up as well. Like it is really high. So anytime I see a vomiting cat that has high sodium, I start looking for where this potential Nerf bullet is. Because I don't know why it is. I'm sure that there's some paper about it that I just haven't found yet, but it's very interesting that they go up. And if anybody remembers from water toxicity, uh, the sodium will go up from that as well. The other big thing is going to be when the sodium decreases. So when it's decreased and we see an elevated potassium, then we start worrying about Addison's disease, which I've done already on another podcast. You can go listen to that one. All right, so we've talked about our CBC, we've talked about our chemistry, and now we're going to talk lastly real quick about urinalysis. So there's three ways to get urinalysis. Is The first way is going to be a free catch, meaning we go follow the pet outside, put the little bowl underneath them to try to catch urine and run that. Usually we can use this when we're looking for specific gravity or how dilute or concentrated the urine is. But we can't use it for all of our situations. The other two ways to get urine are going to be a cystocentesis, meaning that we poke the bladder with a needle to be able to get the urine. It seems like it's a lot more scary. You're like, I don't want anybody to poke a 
needle into my abdomen, right? But they actually don't notice it that much, especially as compared to the third method that we use, which is a catheterization. Meaning we put a urinary catheter through the vulva or through the penis into the bladder to get our urine sample. So I notice way more that they're way more uncomfortable by putting a urinary catheter in than if I was just to poke them with a needle. Now, why would I need to poke them with a needle if I could just like free catch it, right? To like, well, maybe the pet just won't pee? No, actually it's because of very specifically for urinary tract infections, we can't really clean them off really well enough to be able to get a sample without there being bacteria that's on their fur, um, on their skin, to know whether they do have a urinary tract infection or not. So kind of the things that we look for in human medicine is that we have these dipsticks that in human medicine that tells you if there's a lot of white blood cells. That's not as accurate in our animals. Um, they're just like their pH of their urine isn't quite the same. And so it's just not quite as accurate. So instead we have to go off of, is there truly bacteria in there or not? So when we're looking at bacteria, if we're worried about a urinary tract infection, we need to do it either by cysto, so cystocentesis, or by using a um, urinary catheter. We can't just do a free catch for that one. Now, when we're looking at bacteria, all we can know is that there's either rods or there are coxi in there. For and there's no way for us to be able to tell like which type of bacteria it is. All I can say is it's either rods or coxy, and that's about it. There are thousands and thousands of different types of rods. There are thousands and thousands of different types of coxy. And we have to guess as to which one we think it is, and then which antibiotic is going to be the best one for our guess. You can send out a culture and sensitivity, meaning we send it out to the lab. They grow it on a Petri dish. And then they're able to tell you exactly which type of bacteria it is. Plus, then they put antibiotics on that bacteria and they tell us which antibiotics kill that bacteria. Because some bacteria are really resistant to drugs that they, you would think that they would normally work with. So you can send those out to the lab. It does usually take about a week-ish to get them back, but not something that we can get back right away. All we can say is that yes, they have a urinary tract infection or no, they do not have a urinary tract infection. We talked a minute ago about specific gravity. So specific gravity tells me like how concentrated or how dilute our urine is. So if you think about running a marathon and because I'm not going to run a marathon, so you guys can run a marathon, but let's say you ran a marathon and you didn't drink any water at all you're going to be so dehydrated, right? Your urine will be dark, dark yellow. So that tells me your urine is very concentrated versus if I sat in my chair for three hours drinking water nonstop, my urine is going to be very dilute because I'm just drinking and drinking and drinking tons of water. So my urine will look more like water. So that will help us determine a couple of things. Like let's say maybe we weren't able to get a urine sample before. And all I need to know is, is that cat's urine really dilute? Well, we might be able to do just some of that special litter in their litter box, let them urinate, and then collect that urine to be able to check to see how dilute it is using a refractometer. 
Again, go ask Latoya and Jordan what that is. Let them, like, have them show you what that is. It's a super cool little tool to tell, like, how dilute or concentrated urine is. Other things we're going to be looking at a urinalysis for are going to be things like crystals. So crystals are really important in blotch cats, right? We need to know, does, does that pet or cat have crystals and do we need to change their diet? And then blood glucose is important because it can also then go into the urine and become glucosuria, meaning glucose in the urine. <clears throat> that also kind of tells us more about like if the pet potentially has diabetes or not. Ketones are another important one. We talk especially about diabetic animals. We have to worry about them having DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis, which is something I'll do another podcast on. I just need to do Dr. Z, have her do diabetes first. But DKA is another one we worry about. So we want to know, are there ketones in that urine that leads me to think that they might have a DKA? One thing I want to note, though, about all of these tests that I've just mentioned is when you use that little strip to be able to tell you which, you know, if there's glucose or ketones or whatever, remember that those are all based off of color. If we get a urine sample and it's all blood, it is going to, and it turns red, it's just red urine, right? That strip will be inaccurate. It will not tell you the correct numbers because it only it's only red by color. By us, it's red by color. By the machine, it's red by color. It's not a magic thing that can just tell what it is through red. Like it has to be nice yellow urine or clearish urine for it to be able to change color correctly. If it's yellow or sorry, if it's red or if it's like really dark and amber type color, um, all of those are going to mess up results and it's not going to be quite accurate. All right. That's like literally all the blood tests right there. So hopefully that gave like some clarity to things. I always think it's a little bit easier when it's grouped into, you know, which which organs systems that it's affecting. But some of the key notes for all of this is, remember, none of these actually gave us a diagnosis. So they all pointed us to something. It pointed us to the fact that the kidneys were a problem, but it didn't tell me what exactly caused that kidney problem in the first place. We have to use other tools to kind of figure out like what might have caused that. Or if the the blood glucose is really high, looking at other things like fructosamine to tell us whether the pet is actually diabetic or not, because it might have a really high blood glucose, but not be diabetic. So there's lots of different things we have to kind of consider there. Some of the most common questions I get from owners are, well, if the blood work is normal, then the pet must be normal, right? Like there can't be anything that's wrong with them. That's not true because you can have things like a bleeding splenic mass, a bleeding mass on the spleen. And I've had their blood work be picture perfect, nothing wrong with them. You can have things like a foreign body and it looks like the blood, you know, your all your blood work is normal but that doesn't give you the reason why the dog is excessively vomiting. And that's because it's actually that there's a foreign body that's in there and the electrolytes and the other lab work abnormalities just aren't, aren't um, showing any problems yet. They will eventually, but they're not showing any problems just yet. So just because the blood work is normal does not mean that the pet is fine. 
The other thing I get asked a lot is, well, can blood work tell me if my pet has cancer? So you've heard me mention a couple of times about cancer being on our list of differentials, but there were other things as well, right? If the the platelets were low, it could potentially be cancer, or it could be an autoimmune disorder, or it can be a toxin, and you don't know. So we have to go looking for other other diagnostics as well. Doing blood work is one part of it, but it also might mean doing x-rays or an ultrasound to try to figure out what the other parts are as well. So we can put these puzzle pieces together to determine what the root cause of the problem is. And then I'd say another big question is people ask, why should we do blood work? Like, is blood work going to show us anything, especially on puppies, kittens, things like that? Well, yes, it will. Um, in the Vetsplanation podcast, I kind of explain this as, let's say I told you that there was treasure hidden in the United States. That's kind of like somebody coming in and saying, my cat is lethargic. There are thousands and thousands of reasons why that cat might be lethargic. So now I need to do diagnostics to try to figure out or give me hints as to what might be causing them to be lethargic. Same thing for like if I told you that there is treasure somewhere in the United States. That is a lot of ground to cover. You will never find it. But now if I say, all right, I'm going to give you a hint. It's going to be somewhere in Washington. Okay, well, this is more doable, right? Like now we have just one state instead of the entire United States less time that we're going to spend. And now we'd need to figure out more hints to try to figure out what part of Washington. Well, now maybe we did the blood work and I figure out that the platelets are low. Now, maybe we our next step is doing x-rays on the pet. You know, x-rays may not show me the exact place of why the platelets are low, but maybe it shows me that it, it rules out the things that it can't be. So like, let's say, again, going back to our treasure analogy, if I say it is somewhere in Washington, but it is not in a, in a city that starts with a T. Okay. Well, we've ruled out Tacoma now. We know that that's not a possibility. I have no idea what other places in here in Washington start with a T, but any other places that start with a T, it is not going to be there. Right. Okay. Well, now we've narrowed it down even more. Right. I still don't know the exact location, but I, have a better grasp of like the places that it's not going to be in the places I don't need to search. All right, now let's see, we've done our x-rays. I didn't find anything, but maybe now we need to send off some testing to see what might be the cause of these platelets being low. So I send it out to the lab. That's again, essentially like going back to our treasure analogy. I say, well, it's not in Tacoma, but I'm going to tell you that is somewhere between Seattle and Tacoma. All right, well, again, we've like narrowed this down even more. Like this is doable. This is like something in our lifetime we could potentially find this treasure. And the more more diagnostics that we do, the better the picture is, the more hints that we get as to what's causing this in the first place. All right, 
I hope that there was like some sort of clarity again. Like I know this is a lot and I appreciate that everybody is listening to this to the very end. And as you know, I always tell you about some story of mine. So for anybody who doesn't know, we got a new dog. My wife really wanted a small dog for months and months and months. She's always had small dogs. I've always had big dogs. And right now we have two large dogs. And so she really wanted a small dog. She is not the type of person that I can say, no, you cannot have a small dog because it does not matter what I say. If I say, no, you cannot have a small dog, she'll get a small dog. If I say, yes, you can have a small dog, she'll get a small dog. It doesn't matter. So I always just tell her, it's up to you. You do what you want to do. You're a free-spirited person. You're you're just going to do you. So you want a small dog, you get a small dog. So she had picked this small dog from the Humane Society. Um, I can't remember if I had already told this story or not, but she her name was Scrump, and nobody had wanted her because she had an autoimmune disorder. <clears throat> so we, right, my wife fell in love with her and wanted to adopt her. So my... Uh, we went to the Humane Society, you know, we, I talked to the veterinarian, and uh, we ended up adopting her. So the funny part of this is my kids hate dogs, hate them. Like, they will not touch our lab or our Great Dane. Like, I've, my son has touched my lab maybe once or twice. That's about it. But they will not touch them. The only dog that they actually, like, kind of like is Mila. Dr. Van Maren's dog because she does tricks and so they just like to make her do tricks forever. But that's it. They don't they still don't want to pet her or anything. They just like want to make her do tricks. That's it. So we get this small dog, and I just kind of assume this is just gonna be for my wife because she just really wants this small dog. And um we <laughs> my son ends up loving this dog. Like he pets her. Same thing with my daughter. Like I've put her in the back seat and they like, they pet her. Like my daughter was so stubborn about our, our big dogs. One time uh, she did something to Nora. I think she pushed Nora, the great Dane. And I was really upset with her. And I was like, you cannot be mean to the animals. Like you have to tell her you're sorry. She would not do it. And I said, well, if you won't say you're sorry to her, like I didn't even ask her to touch her, right? I just said to say, to say sorry. I said, if you will not say sorry, you have to go in your room until you will come out and say you're sorry to her. She was in there for six hours, did not come out. She would not come out because she just did not want to say sorry to the big dog. Like, how ridiculous is that? Like, your dad is a veterinarian and you don't like dogs? Anyways, they love this little dog. Her name is Hala now, as in the bread. But they love Hala so much. My son even said that when he grew up, one day he was going to own five Shih Tzus. But what? This is a kid that only loves cats. That's it. That's all he's ever loved is cats. And suddenly we have this little dog in the house and they're just in love with her. I just think that's mind-blowing. All right. Well, until my son has five Shih Tzus, we're just going to keep our one Shih Tzu, whatever she's supposed to be. At least she's a very, very nice little dog. And yeah. All right, guys. I believe next week I'm going to be doing meningitis as a request from one of the receptionists. So um, I will talk to you then. Thanks, guys.